0: Hello, hello, good morning. Good to see everybody. Uh, I think we may still have a couple coming in, but we're going to go ahead and begin our time with prayer this morning. So let me, uh, let me just lead us in prayer as we begin. Gracious Father, thank you that we can come together as your people this morning, those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, saved by your grace, and brought to you so that we might have uh, fellowship with you through your son we thank you that we have this we thank you that because we have fellowship with Christ that we have fellowship with one another we thank you for that joy of sharing that and of participating in that and of all the benefits and blessings that come with it and we ask that you might use this time to enrich that we pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of you and our knowledge of your son Jesus Christ of what he has accomplished and that we might be able to be equipped to uh, proclaim these things to others through what we learned this morning we ask all this in Jesus name amen Okay, so we are here again to talk about the incarnation of Christ. This is our uh, last uh, Sunday school hour of the year. Next week, we will, during this time, have a time of breakfast, a time of fellowship around some food. So make sure that you're here at the same time and place for that, except we'll be out in the cafeteria. So looking forward to that as well. For this morning, what we want to do is to look at the second half of the sheet that we started last week on the incarnation of Christ. And as you come to this, uh, I can just fill in the blanks for what you might have, what we talked about last time. Uh, The the incarnation defined is the first part of this. The incarnation defined. And what we learned is that Christ is one person and Christ has two natures. Christ is one person and Christ has two natures. He's fully God. Fully God, meaning he, uh, he was God already before his earthly life and then he was both god and man during his earthly life and continues to be both god and man after his resurrection so he had one nature as god before the incarnation and then he took upon himself human flesh and became man without in any way ceasing to be god during his earthly life and remains that way from here until forever so god and man after his resurrection uh, he is fully man some things that indicate this he was born he had human needs uh, he grew from childhood to adulthood he suffered and died and then he seemed to many to be merely a man that is to say that his humanity uh, was almost the thing taken for granted that it was his deity to the people that saw him which had to be proved and demonstrated so born he was born he had needs he grew he suffered and died, and then he seemed to be merely a man, even though we know him to be more, and he demonstrated himself to be more than that. Uh, this morning, <coughs> excuse me, I <coughs> uh, want to consider a few, first of all, a few ways that the incarnation is described. What does it mean for Jesus to become flesh? Uh, there are a few ways that the Bible commonly refers to this. One of these is simply Christ came into the world, that Jesus Christ came into the world first uh, 1 timothy 1:15 says that christ jesus came into the world why does anyone know to save who sinners christ jesus came into the world to save sinners and paul says among whom i am foremost of all he came into the world uh, John 1.9, there this there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. John 3.19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And uh, John 11.27, she said to him, Jesus, Lord, uh, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And many other such passages. What does it imply for Christ to come into the world it's a pretty straightforward question but what does that imply okay to come dwell with us yes what else Stephen? yeah he was not in the world that's right there was a time when Christ was not in the world now of course in his uh in, in his being God the son he has always possessed Uh, omnipresence meaning that he has always been in the world and anywhere else in that way as God but he was not in the world in this way in the way that the son of God became man and came into the world so there was a time when he was not in the world but then there came a time when he was in the world and of course now he is no longer in the world until such time as he comes again and returns into the world uh, so he came into the world. Uh, a second way that the Incarnation is described is that he became flesh. He became flesh. First uh, Timothy 3:16 speaks of he who was revealed in the flesh, He who was revealed in the flesh. Uh, John 1:14 says that the Word did what? became flesh and dwelt among us the word became flesh and dwelt among us so there is this idea of taking on flesh or taking on flesh and bone Um, Jesus was not merely a spirit who came into the world and looked like man but he actually took on the fullness of human flesh so for example when Jesus was resurrected and uh, one of his disciples thought or all of his disciples thought that they were seeing a ghost a spirit What did he say to them they thought they were seeing a spirit and he said touch me right you can you can see a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone like me or like like I do so you can actually confirm by touching or they could actually confirmed by means of touching that he had come into the world and that he wasn't just spirit but that he took on flesh and in fact uh, in the book of first john john speaks of this kind of thing when he says in first uh, john 1 1 what was from the beginning what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes what we have looked at and what touched with our hands concerning the word of life So we can't do that ourselves now. We can't reach out and touch Jesus. But John and the other apostles did. They were able to do that. And then on that basis, they testified not only to the fact that they saw him and heard him, but even that they touched him, which speaks about his being really and truly flesh. Um, Romans 8.3 says, Paul puts it in an interesting way. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What that indicates is that Jesus came in the flesh, but he wasn't exactly like typical sinful people. He was like us in the fact that he was flesh and blood. He was not like us with regard to sin. So he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he goes on, uh, the writer of Hebrews does, to say, Therefore, Hebrews 2.14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He also partook of the same. So he partook of flesh and blood. One more passage here, Colossians 2.9 nine says for in him all the fullness of deity dwells does anybody know you youth do you know what comes next in him all the fullness of deity dwells where anybody shout it out in bodily form in bodily form I know some of you know it and you just don't want to yell it out but that's what it says in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form so all the fullness of deity means Completely and totally God. But in bodily form means he actually has a body because he is a man. So Christ became flesh. That doesn't mean that he stopped being God. It means that he started being man. Uh, So he came into the world. He became flesh. Another way the Bible describes his incarnation is that he was revealed. He was revealed. So Hebrews 9.26 tells us, That now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Uh, So this would be something where manifested just simply means that before he was not shown or he was not visible. But now he has been. He has been made. He's been put out where you can see him. That's what it means to be manifested. So Jesus has always uh, existed as the son as god but it says at the consummation of the ages he has been manifested he was shown to the world and the way that he was shown to the world was not by a picture being sent or even by words being communicated about him but by actually being made visible in the flesh in the world first uh, peter 1 says that he has appeared in these last times he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last t- times for the sake of you so then John can tell us in first John 1:2: the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us so again Jesus is with God just as he was in the beginning but then he was manifested to the disciples, the apostles who became eyewitnesses and wrote down all these things to tell us. He was shown to them. This is what it means for him to become man. 1 John 3, 5, he appeared in order to take away sins. Uh, 1 John 3, 8, the son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the work of the devil. So manifested, appeared, these are the kinds of words that are used to describe him he is revealed meaning that you couldn't see him before but now there was a time when you could see him and we have the report of that christ was revealed and then the fourth way that the incarnation is described is very simple christ was born christ was born galatians 4 4 when the fullness of the time came god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law And Romans 1, 3 tells us that he was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. So this is the way that the Bible describes the incarnation. Can you think of any others while we're here? This is just in case, a catch-all thing. But any other ways the Bible describes this, Jesus being made incarnate. Yeah, Isaiah uh, 9, it would be. Yeah, unto us a uh, child is born, unto us a son is given. Yep, yep. Yeah, great, uh, great answer. What else? Anything else? Nope, okay, good. Well, we've got plenty to cover, so we will keep going. Uh, Let's talk about the distortion, the incarnation distorted. Just... A few words on this because we covered a lot of this last week with regard to Philippians chapter 2, some possible errors regarding the incarnation and there are of course many. Uh, If you want more information. If you want more information on this, there was uh, a sermon a few months ago that I did on Luke chapter 2. Right at the end where it talked about Christ's humanity. So the last sermon in Luke chapter 2. And went through a number of the uh, historical heresies that people came up with. Wrong views of understanding Jesus' deity and his humanity. Or one or the other or the way that they relate to each other. But just a few things to note here. One error is that Christ abandoned some attributes That he abandoned attributes this would be a big problem saying that he is no longer God and we talked about Philippians 2 last time about the passage the kenosis passage where Jesus emptied himself and simply uh, to, to summarize that briefly what that means is not that he gave up any type of attribute as God he remained the same in his deity but that he emptied himself by becoming man and then as man by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross so he took on the form of a bond he gave up certain uh, respect and worship and privileges by virtue of becoming man there were things that he had to go through and to suffer because of that that he did not deserve and because of this philippians 2 tells us god highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. So the eternal son of God didn't lose any of his attributes. Rather, he gained something, which was human nature. Uh, Robert Raymond puts it this way, quote, without ceasing to be what he eternally is, as God, the son of God, took into union with himself what he was not, making our human nature his very own so Jesus didn't give up, or the Son did not give up any attributes. Um, another error, of course, would be to say that Christ was two persons, that he is uh, God and man, that he's a God person and a man person. So they would say something like God plus a man, or God in a man, basically denying the uh the one person, the union of the two natures into one person, and rather separating those two natures out into two persons and saying there's Jesus who is God, and then there's a a man Jesus, a God Jesus and a man Jesus, and it's two different people. It doesn't work that way. He has two natures in one person. So we need to make sure that we don't make that error as well. And then another uh, error would be saying that Jesus became the Son of God at his incarnation To say that he became the son of God. Um, He was sent into the world. But from where? What was there before the case? He didn't simply start to exist at that time. And he didn't become the son at that time. Although there are certain dimensions of his sonship. Which do begin at his coming into the world. And in fact even at his resurrection. But he was as 1 Peter 1.20 tells us. Foreknown from eternity past. So Jesus has always been the son father son and holy spirit have existed always and yet uh jesus did come into the world and was born as the son of man so then jesus did not become the son of god in his incarnation he has always been god and he has always been god the son Um, that's just a few things to briefly go through that because i want to make sure that we that we uh, uh get into the reason why the incarnation had to happen so anything on distortions before we move on okay all right so we will talk about uh we'll talk about now why the incarnation is demanded why did there have to be an incarnation and you have some things there in front of you of course but if you were just going to say why did this have to happen why did jesus have to be The God-man. Why did he have to come into the world in this way? How would you answer someone who said that? So he had to be, yeah, he had to be tempted. Yeah, Mark. Okay, to pay the price for human sin. That's right. Yeah. Fulfill prophecy. Yes. You guys are getting all the answers already. This is good. This is good. Yeah, Patrick. Patrick. Yeah, he was going to reveal his justice that way. Yes, that's right. Mm. Yeah, Romans 5, right? Through a man, death came. So through a man, life is going to come. That's right. Okay, very good. So let's talk through some of these things. Uh, The first thing would be to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, as Bridget said. And just there are many of these which... Uh, imply that there would be someone who came who would be a man and who would fulfill many of these promises of rescuing people, that there would be a son. So Genesis 3.15 speaks about the seed of the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, that's a passage where you wouldn't look at that apart from all later revelation and know all that that was going to entail. And yet, in retrospect, you find that there is someone who was promised and that this someone clearly came to be the serpent crusher. And that is Jesus Christ. He was going to be bruised on the heel by the serpent, but he would crush the serpent. He would bruise him on the head. And um, this is not only taken to... To refer to Jesus but we sort of get in on the party as Romans 16 says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet so we even get to be involved in this just as we will reign with Christ uh, there is a final defeat that we all get to participate in but Jesus is the one who is the one who does that so the seed of the woman The seed of the woman. From early on, there is promised a coming man who would be the Savior and the one who defeated Satan. Uh, The seed of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12 makes reference to uh, a promise that the in Abraham's seed, all of the nations of the earth, or all the families of the earth, would be blessed. Now that idea of seed has many different uh, ways that that plays out in Scripture. It refers to the physical seed of Israel in terms of the or of Abraham in terms of the nation of Israel. It refers to even spiritual descendants according to Romans chapter four, but it also refers uh, specifically to in in one of its senses and applications to Jesus Christ Himself. Where in Galatians chapter three, Paul says this. Let me read this to you. Uh, where there's a promise that's made. And the promise made to Abraham is about his seed or his descendants. And it says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. And he goes out of his way to make sure that we understand that he has in mind here that Jesus Christ is, is going to bring this blessing to others that he is going to be the one and so it's not just a general promise to the seed the descendants of Abraham which clearly was fulfilled in other ways in scripture but it is also here emphatically that there would be a single person who would come who would be the one to bring blessing to the nations so this had to happen there had to be someone like this a descendant a human being who would do this Uh, there also is going to be the son of david the son of david <clears throat> and uh it, this is this is b part 2 here on your outline i think so apologies for the typo but the son of david there was a promise that was given that there would be a son that would come to david david would have a son who would sit on his throne we call this the davidic what covenant Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David that his descendant would sit on the throne. This is fulfilled initially in Solomon. It's fulfilled ongoingly through the number of sons, uh, the descendants of David that remained on the throne. So that David would, uh, would ultimately have, a, uh, as Jeremiah says, not lack a man to sit on the, his throne. And that ultimate son of David is said to be the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus. Now, there's an interesting passage about this in Matthew 21, if you want to turn there, excuse me, 22. Uh, just look at that for a moment, Matthew chapter 22. And this is at the end of two entire chapters of Jesus being challenged and having questions asked about him that he responds to with brilliance. And eventually, they get to, uh, to the end of all these questions only because Jesus Just shuts them down he keeps shutting down their questions and he exposes the the flaws in their thinking and he shows that he has an answer a correct answer a biblical answer for everything but then Jesus turns the tables and at the end of Matthew 22 he asks them a question and he says in verse 42 to the Pharisees "Uh, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he and they said to him the son of David now this of course is obviously true This is the way that the scripture describes him in in many places. But he said to them, then how does David in the spirit or by the spirit, uh, basically speaking in terms of divine inspiration in the scriptures, how does he call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Okay, so what does Jesus do? He says Psalm 110 exists. Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, David says to this one, uh, he calls him Lord. So the Lord said to my Lord. David says there is such a one as my Lord and that my Lord is the same person who is going to reign as Christ. So David is the, the, or excuse me, the Messiah is the son of David. So here's David and the Messiah descends down through the line, right? And then he says, David talks about this one who came from him as above him, as his Lord. He says, how can he be on both sides of that? How is the descendant of David, the Lord of David? And verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Uh, How would you answer that question? If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? How would you answer that? Would you be like the Pharisees and say, I don't know, but I don't want it to be true? Or would you have an explanation? So he knew that there was something special about an ultimate son that was coming. There, there was somebody, if, this was gonna, if he was going to reign forever, there had to be something about him that was different and distinct. That he wouldn't just keep uh, having sons that ruled and died and ruled and died and so on. Yes. Yeah, there would have to be something different about him for David to call him Lord. David didn't look at Solomon and, and say, my Lord. He didn't look at Josiah or Hezekiah or any of his other descendants who ruled on the throne and call him Lord. He knew there had to be something different about him. And again, this is not just David speculating. This is David speaking by the Spirit of God. This is prophetic messages, a prophetic message from God. So David says this stuff and it is true. David calls his own descendant Lord. And of course, the only way that this turns out to be possible is for this one to be not only a physical descendant of david but also for him to be the son of god and so paul says at the beginning of the book of romans uh, listen to the way that he describes the two sides of this it says uh, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of david according to the flesh And who is declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's descendant of David, according to the flesh. He is the son of God, according to the spirit of holiness. These two things together describe Jesus Christ. So according to the flesh, he is the son of David. According to the spirit, he is the son of God. And he's powerfully declared to be that by the resurrection from the dead. So what you have here then is uh, the two sides of this coming together in one person. The son of God and the son of David. And this is the Messiah. This is the one that is promised. The son of David. Okay, so he's got to fulfill that. Uh, he also needs to be the suffering servant. The suffering servant. Isaiah 52 speaks of a man who appears to us to be just like any other man nothing special about the way he looks that we would esteem him nothing that is lofty about him in his humanity he just is another guy in terms of uh, all of his human features and yet he suffered he was to suffer and to die so there had to be a man who would come and do this and who would rescue people Um, there is Another, uh, another passage here where he is described or predicted as the star of Jacob. If you want to turn with me into, into the book of Numbers, we'll talk through this here for a minute. If you're not familiar with the section, uh, Numbers 24 is where this happens. And this is the conclusion, well, it's on the backside of Israel's uh, wanderings in the wilderness So they go out in the early chapters of Numbers, they're numbered, and then they go out, and uh, they refuse to go into the promised land, Numbers 13 and 14. They don't believe that God can take them in, and say the people are too big, and God says, "Uh, no, you need to go, and Joshua and Caleb say, we need to go, and they say, we're not going to go, and that's really the end of the story, because God says, "Uh, you don't believe me, so you're going to die in the wilderness, and then they say, oh, no, we'll go now, So then they try to go in and they get defeated right away. So then they wander in the wilderness for some 38 years. They've already been out there for a year or so. And uh, a number of things happen. Well, when you get to the end of that time, you then find yourself in the plains of Moab, Numbers 22, 23, and 24. And God uses this evil and um, badly intentioned pagan prophet named Balaam who is in it for the money and is sent or commissioned by the king of Moab, Balak, to go and to curse Israel? And the Lord appears to him and says, "You're not going to do that. You're going to only say what I what I say. And you and uh, I don't want you to go. But then, if you do go, you can only say what I say. And this is where Balaam and uh, the donkey come in. You know the story about the talking donkey, right?" Uh, and Balaam the donkey sees the angel of the Lord who is blocking him and then progressively makes it more and more difficult to go forward and ultimately uh, Balaam starts you know, he starts hitting the donkey and the donkey turns around and talks to him. Why are you beating me? And then he talks back to the donkey as if it's like this is normal thing that a donkey would talk to you. Anyway, uh, so this happens and Balaam is sent out a number of times by, to go and prophesy and to curse them. Except for he opens his mouth and blessing comes out because the spirit of the Lord gives him the words to say. Well, at the end of this section, he looks out upon Israel and in Numbers 24 Uh, he says, starting in verse 14, uh, and now behold, I'm going to my people, come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. And he talks about what Israel is going to do to Moab in the days to come. The, uh, by the way, the end of the days, if you remember that from Daniel in the last days, what is he going to do? He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. And shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. What you have here is sort of a uh, a proto-prediction. Prediction. Of one particular person who's going to come and be a ruler, a strong military leader who would come out of Israel. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. It's going to happen, he says, in the days to come, in the last days, that this one would come. And there is this promise that Jesus would come and would bring his people rescue and deliverance from all of those who oppose them, including this specific nation, who was hostile toward Israel, trying to prevent them from going into the promised land and from going through, so uh, you have a promise of the star of Jacob that is coming. Um, Isaiah seven fourteen, the son of a virgin. Isaiah seven fourteen, um, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and this then is applied in the book of Matthew. So Isaiah seven fourteen talks about this. Um, and he he had to have this to maintain his sinlessness this was not the cause of sinless, sinlessness by the way but the purpose is that god would dwell with us, And so Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. And so you have Mary who had not known a man who was not married. And yet she had this miraculous thing take place in her life to fulfill this prophecy that God had made. And then... Uh, Finally here, as far as fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, the passage that Patrick mentioned earlier, Isaiah 9, verse 6, and verse 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness... From then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So this is the man who is going to reign on the throne of David. And clearly he is referred to as mighty God, eternal father. This is an amazing thing for this child to be born. And then for him to be referred to as God. And for him to be the one that reigns on the throne as the son of David. All of the pieces coming together. The God-man who is the Messiah. This is who Jesus is. So these are some Old Testament prophecies. Anything else that comes to mind as you think about what had to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ? Or any questions about these? What did the incarnation do concerning Old Testament prophecy? Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even David may not have had an exact answer for how his son could be his Lord. He just knew that it was the case. That... Yeah, yeah, so that's the thing that David would have, yeah, because of who David was, he would have responded in faith to Jesus when he showed up. Yeah, um, but, but yeah, he, uh, would he have known exactly what that looks like? Um, Yeah, just, just thinking through, I mean, probably when you take the composite of all Old Testament scripture, he would know that there would be a man who would come to do this. He would know that his son would be a very special you know a special person and yeah and then he's he's saying these things so if he's not already saying this because it's been revealed to him that this like what that means for his son to be lord um, he probably can put those pieces together pretty well uh, just by looking at that and as you say first peter (coughs) one refers to people not knowing what person or time that would show up in but they knew about the sufferings of christ and the glories to follow so there was i mean david's um uh, psalm 22. uh, my lord why have you forsaken me uh there's a there's a lot there uh we also well we we do know that um he knew that christ would be resurrected because peter talks about that in acts 2. so he looked ahead To the resurrection of the christ when he says you haven't abandoned my soul to decay or allowed your or allowed your to seal or allowed your holy one to undergo decay so david knew that the um the messiah the christ that would come from him would die and be raised from the dead um so did he understand him to be the god man uh in the way that he has clearly been revealed in the new testament uh apart from isaiah um apart from isaiah 9 i'm trying to think of whether we would know yeah Yeah, maybe so the, let me think, so there was like, uh, who was the guy, the prophet in Luke 2, I can't remember his name, yeah, yeah, the priest in in Luke 2, Phineas, Simeon, that's right, okay, Simeon, and he comes into the spirit, uh, to the temple in the spirit, and, but it had been revealed that he wouldn't see, he wouldn't know the Lord, wouldn't die until he'd seen the Lord's Christ, and it does seem that he was able to recognize who it was because the Holy Spirit was, was upon him. Um, <clears throat> there, there are different degrees of... Um, and so the way that the Spirit works to inspire Scripture is it's not exactly the same at all points. So sometimes, like in the Gospel of Luke, for example... Um, Luke is inspired by the Spirit, but he very much is aware of every word that he's writing. So he's not just like he knows what he means. Um, whereas there are sometimes, like you mentioned, Saul would have been prophesying basically against his will. And in fact, um, he, it's humorous the way God used his uh, used that prophesying, which was basically to throw him down to the ground and make him just stop chasing David. Um, so he's not really like there. There's a sense, and people use the phrase that sometimes the Old Testament writers uh, wrote they wrote more than they understood or better than they understood. There's a little bit of that. I I would say that that's not quite, they they didn't write as much better than they understood as some people would argue. Like they they largely knew what they were doing, even when there are things that we might not put the pieces together automatically. But uh, the writers writing these things, like they didn't know everything that was meant by that. So I'm not certain um, that it would be the spirit of the lord upon david that would necessarily make him recognize christ I, i'd have to think about that i'm I'm not certain that that would be uh that that would be the case so i don't know it's a good thought though um i just mm-hmm Yeah, so when he shows up there's no way that David's not looking at that going yep that's the guy you know he he would he would understand and believe that yeah um did he put those pieces together and know exactly you know that the god man is intended you probably have to think yes if he is referring to him as lord then what does that mean well he's talking about i mean who is David's lord he's got to be god and then who is David's uh David's son Obviously, he's speaking about the Messiah, and he is a descendant of David. So, yeah, you can put those pieces together pretty well. Yeah. Mm. No, no, it's not. It's a very unusual and unique person. Um, let's look at some of the um, the purposes here. So, uh, why did he come? He came... to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. So Old Testament prophecy had to be fulfilled. The scriptures must be fulfilled. It was required. Uh, It was also needed for him to be a fitting high priest... For him to be a high priest so hebrews chapter 2 talks about this a lot he had to offer himself there's no way that we could be saved from our sins unless we had the blood of an offering that was actually sufficient and actually of the right kind to pay for our sins so what does hebrews tell us that the blood of bulls and goats can never do what take away sin they never do that. That's why they had to keep being repeated over and over again. But Hebrews 10.10 says that by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There could be no sacrifice of the Son of God if it weren't for him actually becoming man. So he had to do this. He offered himself as the sacrifice, but he also ministers to us as a high priest. So in addition to being the offering, he is the one who ...who is the one that we access God through. So the priests had that function as well. They didn't just offer sacrifices, but they also uh, mediated God to the people. So Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then regarding that mercy and that understanding, like being a merciful high priest, someone who actually could identify with us, it says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, sometimes we get caught up in this uh, discussion and understandably so about the reality of jesus temptation and we we don't understand how he could be tempted if he is the god man Uh, we understand that james 1 tells us that sin happens or temptation happens when we are uh, when we have our own desires so each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And there's a sense in which that that's true, obviously because the scripture says so, that's not the entirety of the way the bible describes temptation. Temptation is something that happens because we have internal desires that match with an opportunity on the outside, but clearly temptation is something that happens Uh, through circumstances that we then have the choice whether to do or not. So this is how Jesus could go to the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. He was really actually tempted. God wasn't lying when he said that. So we are tempted as sinful people by our own internal desires that align with an opportunity on the outside. But then Jesus was tempted not because he had sinful desires, but simply because he had desires and needs. And the way that he could have met those desires and needs would have been sinful for him to do. So it's a little bit different in terms of uh, (coughs) how prone we are. Actually, it's a lot different, categorically different, in terms of how prone we are to temptation versus Jesus. He cannot give in to temptation, but he can really be tempted. And when we get hung up on that and don't push through and believe what God says about the reality of Jesus' temptation, we miss a really, really vital part of our relationship to God. Because it says that Jesus can help us when we're tempted specifically because he himself was tempted. He isn't off at a distance unable to understand what we went through. But he actually knows what it's like to be tempted. It says he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And Hebrews 4 tells us in verse 15 that he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So he never gave in, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't really tempted in all the same things that we are as well. So Jesus came to be a a priest who understands us, who can be uh, merciful or compassionate. He knows when you're tempted and you go to God through him for help and you ask for grace to help in time of need uh he isn't looking at you going how could you you know how could you be tempted by something like that you weak little human he isn't doing that he's going I I never gave in and sinned but I know what you're going through I know what it's like I know what it's like to really want to do something or to not want to do something that doesn't align with the bible and you you can't do it you need to not do it. You need to obey me. But I understand. And I'm, and I'm going to give you grace to help you in that moment. So we need to make sure that we understand <clears throat> Jesus' reality of his temptation. And that came through actually being fully and truly man just as we are. <clears throat> so uh, he came to be a fitting high priest, an appropriate high priest. Not one who's off at a distance, who is unable to sympathize with us. But also not one who is weak and who is only man, and who is sinful, like the Levitical high priests who died and weren't able to continue ministering past that time. All right, so he also came not only to be a fitting high priest, but to uh, be a mediator between God and man, to be a mediator between God and man. Um, I skipped number three, sorry, to bring many sons to glory. Hebrews 2.10 talks about this. This was what he came into the world to do. He came to take people who are uh god's people and to bring them out of their sin into their eternal destined uh well destiny into what god had planned for them all along romans eight twenty eight talks about this doesn't it where it says that those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and then what those whom he predestined he also called those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also what glorified so from the beginning all the way to the end this was God's intention for these people and here in Hebrews two ten, it says that God intended to bring many sons to glory and this was Jesus role in bringing that about that he would be the author of their salvation he would sanctify them and so Jesus had to become a man to be part of that role as well. Um, so then number four, to be a mediator between God and man. He had to be a mediator. And uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. He was a the mediator the one mediator we need someone to go between us and god because there's a problem we started the problem with god we rebelled against him so we need someone to bring us to god and the way that jesus did that is not just by bringing us into god's presence as we were but by dying for us giving himself as a ransom so that we might come to him he is said to be in hebrews 9 15 the mediator of a new covenant not the mediator of the old covenant He died to satisfy the Old Covenant requirements, but he is the mediator of the New Covenant as a great high priest. Okay, a few things. Speed round here. Uh, He came to enable God to dwell among his people. This is an entire uh, theology that we can trace from the beginning of Scripture through the end. Well, uh, where God intends to dwell among his people. So he created man, he's walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, and then sin causes a problem with that, but then God comes back to, uh, to Israel, and they're sinful, but he wants to dwell in the midst of his people, so what does he do? He Sets up the sacrifice, sets up the, the temple, sets up the tabernacle, so that he could dwell in the holy of holies, and so that the people could come near and worship him, and he could be in the midst of his people. God wants to dwell among them. And the language of John 4, uh, 1.14 is that he pitched his tent and dwelt among his people. So John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the, the idea behind that word. And then, of course, <clears> at <throat> uh, the, the end of the book of Revelation, he speaks about this as well. He will dwell among them and they will be his people. So God is going to dwell among men. This is the trajectory and one of the ways that that is fleshed out is literally by being fleshed out in the person of Jesus Christ. He this enables God to dwell among His people. Jesus came to show how to live. He came to show how to live. Uh, tell us what to do in everything. First John, uh, First John two six. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as He. Walt. He wanted to show us how to live in all ways, in, uh, as an example of suffering, First 1 Peter one twenty one, as an example. Uh, he came to quote-unquote exegete God, you know the word, to draw out God, uh, to show what God is like, to explain him. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And then he came to show us how to have enduring faith enduring faith okay two more things quickly he wanted he he came into the world to overcome the curse of the law galatians 4 says that christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us so those who are under the guilt that came from being uh, disobedient to the law of god he became a curse instead uh, and Galatians 3 talks about that as well. And then he came finally to be a substitute for sin. And of course, this is the one that's spoken of over and over and over in scripture. That he came to be the spotless sacrifice that was required. 1 Peter 1.19 tells us about this. 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus did not come... Uh, as a sinner instead he came to be treated as if he were one in his suffering on our behalf and that's the glory of the incarnation of Jesus coming into the world this is what we celebrate is not just that Jesus came and lived among us and that there was a really cool story at Christmas time but that he came to suffer and to die in our place let's uh go to the Lord and close in prayer father thank you for this time thank you that Jesus came thank you that we were not left on our own, but the many blessings that he brings by virtue of being the God-man uh, are, are ours through faith in him. And may we honor him with our lives and with the rest of our time here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.